There is one body and one spirit. There is one hope and God's call to us. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Eternal Father, at the baptism of Jesus, you revealed him to be your son, and your Holy Spirit descended upon him like a dove. Grant that we who are born again by water and the Spirit may be faithful as your adopted children. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. A reading from the book of Isaiah. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare before they bring forth. I tell you of them. The word of the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went out doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the 
people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to stay for some days. The word of the Lord. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. And John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest upon him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Lord Jesus, we do proclaim, and it is our joy to proclaim, that your name is the highest name of all. We give you thanks and praise and pray that um, you would be exalted in our midst. Teach us, Lord, and we pray as we um, look at your word together. We ask all this in your precious name. Amen. Be seated. One of uh, my um, newer, uh, but uh, um, new favorite uh, podcast um, is a podcast called The Rest is History. Uh, maybe some of you are familiar with it. It's um, two uh, British um, historians um, talking about history, uh, which, again, depending on your interest in history, may not get you very excited, or maybe some of you are like, ooh, that sounds great, any history podcast. Um, uh, but these um, two historians, uh, one named Dominic um, Sandbrook, the other Tom Holland, not Spider-Man Tom Holland, but a different British uh, Tom Holland. Maybe it's a popular name in England. Um, but they, uh, they uh, are both brilliant and very knowledgeable. But they're also very funny and clearly just love history. And so when they talk about it, you can sense their love. And they love talking about it together. So you sense their enjoyment of just talking about history uh, together. Um, and they recently, around Christmas, did a two-part um, series about the person of Jesus. And looking at who Jesus is as historians, and they acknowledge up front that it's very hard to sort of study Jesus as a historian in light of the impact and obviously how important he is to many, many people um, in our world, but they attempt to do so. As they're talking about Jesus and about different things written about him, they talk, of course, about the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and other scriptures as well, but in particular, the Gospels and their account of the person of Jesus and the work of Jesus. And one thing they say is, Looking at the Gospels as historians, 
that there's much to speak that speaks to the reliability of the Gospels as historical documents. Now, they don't believe everything in the Gospels. That becomes clear as they talk about them. But they're saying when you read them as a historian, you don't read them as myth. They don't come across as just these made-up stories. They say they're like other historical documents. They're clearly part of a culture. They're clearly the intention is to rightly communicate who this person Jesus was. And they talk, for instance, when you read the Gospels, at how unusual and unique and surprising the teachings of Jesus are. They're like, if you just step back and clearly read them as a historian, you have to say, this person was really unique and sort of strange. This is not someone that anyone could make up. Right? Teachings like this that last 2,000 years are beyond sort of you know, the invention of, of a story. This clearly is people recounting this incredibly influential person, and it's no surprise that many would choose to follow him and to give their life to making him known. They also talk about the fact that in the Gospels, again, when they look at them as historians, they say there are things actually that are surprising that they're included, that actually the people of faith would want to include these things, which suggests to them they must have actually happened. They're included because everyone knew this was what happened. And one of those things they talk about is the baptism of Jesus, which um, uh, today is the the Sunday set apart to celebrate and to remember Jesus' baptism. And their actually take is, you know, this is kind of an embarrassing moment for Christians. Like, you know, maybe they, you know, if they had been thinking they wouldn't have included it if they didn't have to, because Jesus, who we affirm and the scriptures affirm, is without sin, comes to be baptized by John. And the baptism, clearly, John is clear that his baptism is for the repentance of sin. But of course, we don't view this moment as an embarrassment, right? We don't say, ooh, let's skip those verses about Jesus being baptized and move on to something else. No, right? We've set aside, the church has set aside this day to celebrate. And remember, all four Gospels celebrate the baptism of Jesus. Because this actually, then, rather than being an embarrassing moment where we kind of are awkward, like, why would Jesus be baptized? It's a moment for us to really consider, why would Jesus be baptized? It's an incredibly important teaching moment. It's interesting, isn't it? In the gospel reading, you can tell John's awkward about it. Like, I I shouldn't be baptizing you. But what does Jesus say, right? It's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Again, kind of captures what an amazing teacher Jesus is because we say, what does that mean? He puts us in this place of meditating on it. What does that mean, fulfill all righteousness? As we consider that, we realize, oh, the only way for me ultimately be made righteous, right, fully and perfectly righteous is through Christ coming in my place, through him representing me. And we see, oh, this is what Jesus is doing here. He is coming as our representative. He's making clear, although he has no sins to repent of, he stands with, he comes to represent those who do have sins to repent of. That's what John needed to learn. It's what we need to learn. I am coming as one of you, not above you, but with you. And I'm undergoing baptism with you to show, right, that I am your representative. The baptism of Jesus, in one sense, points back right, to his birth. Right? He came as one of us. He came as a vulnerable child. The baptism of Jesus points forward to his death. He actually, a few different times in the gospel, speaks of his coming death as a baptism. He says, there is a baptism I'm going to undergo. Right? A baptism into death, into sin, on our behalf. Bearing our sins. So this is a key moment, right, where we see Jesus has come as he begins his ministry. He is saying, I come as your representative. And I want to consider, there's so much to consider about Jesus representing us. But in particular, I want to consider today how he represents us in humility and with kindness. 
and how that shines out in particular in Isaiah reading, this powerful prophecy about Jesus. I want to look at and consider how we see the humility of Jesus and the kindness of Jesus, our representative. But then I also want to consider how we're called to represent Jesus. Now, in a way that's different, right? Jesus represents us in a way only he can, right? He is the unique son of God who came to bear our sins upon himself, which only he could do. So he is the unique representative, right, of all people. But we who put our faith in him are called to represent him in the way actually that Peter talks about in our Acts reading, um, there in verse 42, where he says, he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. We are called to represent him as those who testify to who he is. We represent him through our words, through our actions. We continue the ministry of Jesus with him, which is really important. We're his representatives, but not without him. He is there with us. He is working through his church and through his people. And so if Jesus represented us with humility and with kindness, then of course we're called to represent him with humility and kindness. So if you look at Isaiah 42... Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. This is the first of four passages in Isaiah that are often referred to as the servant songs of Isaiah. You have the servant coming up again and again in Isaiah. And there was some question initially, like who is this servant that Isaiah is speaking about? Is he speaking about himself? Is he speaking about the nation of Israel when he speaks of this servant? Who is this servant? And interestingly enough, an uncommon answer to that question actually is that Isaiah is speaking of the Messiah, right? There are many, you know, prophecies in the Old Testament that were understood and thought to be talking about the coming Messiah, the Savior. But often the servant was seen as different from the Messiah. Now we know that's not the case because, again, in the New Testament, it's very clear, including the Gospel of Matthew, where Isaiah 42 is quoted in chapter 12, that this is Jesus. This is the Messiah. But the reason that often the servant was separate from the Messiah is because the servant is so lowly. He's so humble. Like, how can this be the one who will come and set people free? How, will, how can this be the one that's this mighty warrior that will defeat the enemies of God when there's such a lowliness? Especially, right, when you consider a later servant song, the end of Isaiah 52 and, and chapter 53, the suffering servant. You can see how they would say, this doesn't seem like a Messiah, And yet we know, again, it is, right? We have a humble Messiah, a humble Savior. How do we see that humility? One in particular I want to focus on how we see humility in the servant and that the servant is receptive. There is an openness to the servant to receive all that God has uh, for him. The servant, in a sense, is open-handed to receive from the Lord. And that's a sign of humility. That's a a way we live out um, in humbleness. If we think of pride being the opposite of humility, Pride, if we can imagine, often is sort of a closed hand, right? I, I can do it myself. I don't need anything, right? It's sort of a refusal to receive, you know, to receive, you know, um, advice, to receive correction, to, to receive help, but also even to receive encouragement often. Tough and all, the, the prideful person is tempted to say, you know, I don't need your encouragement. I don't need your charity. I can do it all by myself. And what a contrast then we see with the servant who receives Right, who receives the praise and the celebration of God. My servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. And again, we see the fulfillment of this. And you know, why is this read on the baptism of Jesus Sunday? Because we see, again, Jesus coming out of the waters of baptism. Right? And the Father saying, this is my son in whom I 
delight. Jesus receives, right, that delight, that love um, of the Father. Right? It's our prayer that Claire today, as she is baptized, would know that voice of the Father rejoicing over her and celebrating her. Right? This is, Jesus has that openness, the servant, that openness to receive that praise. And as often pointed out, right, those words of affirmation and celebration of Jesus come before he's even begun his public ministry. Right? It's before he's been casting out demons and healing people and teaching. Right at the beginning, the Father is clear. This is my Son, and I rejoice in Him. And there's a humility again in receiving that. But there's affirmation here, but there's also, again, the giving of a call, the giving of a mission. And the servant receives that mission. It's right there in the second part of verse um, 1. I've put my spirit upon him. As he is called to fulfill this mission, he receives the spirit of God. And we see that then later. Look at uh, verses 5 and 6. Right? Thus says the Lord, the God who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and the spirit to those who walk in it. So this is the God who is the Lord of all, who created all things, who is the Lord of life, and who says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. So again, you see, there's a receiving of this calling. There's a receiving of the mission. And the mission is marked by partnership. It's marked by the Lord saying, look, I will fulfill my covenant through you. I will put my spirit upon you. We will do this together. The servant must have that humility to say, ah, I will act in partnership with the Lord. I will only fulfill this covenant together with the Lord who calls me. And it's amazing how we see this so powerfully in the ministry of Jesus. And I say it's amazing because I think oftentimes in our minds, right, when we proclaim that Jesus is Lord of all, which Peter does, right, in that reading we just read, we proclaim that his name is above every name, perhaps our minds go to, therefore he can do it all alone, right? Therefore he is totally independent, right? That tends to be how we think about power and strength and authority. And yet in Jesus we see constantly he is celebrating, I'm in partnership. I do this with the Father. I do it with the Spirit. Right? And so, right after the baptism of Jesus, what does Matthew tell us? He tells us, if you keep reading, the Spirit led him into the wilderness. Jesus, who is Lord, the beloved Son of God, is led by the Spirit. Right? And when he's in the wilderness, he's not by himself. Right? In one sense, he is, but in a very important sense, he is not. He is with the Father and the Spirit. He is in fellowship. He is in partnership. And so when Satan comes and tempts him, right? Jesus is ready. Right? He, you know, we often think, oh, man, he must have been in a desperate place, right? No, he was in a place of rejoicing and enjoying the fellowship, right? He was hungry. <laughs> he had been fasting, but he was ready because, again, he knew partnership. Jesus is not ashamed of the partnership. He's not ashamed of working together with the Father and the Spirit, but celebrates it. Just a couple of verses from John. This is captured so powerfully in the Gospel of John. Jesus says at one point, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing which is kind of wild. Like, well, surely Jesus can glorify himself, and it means a lot. But he says, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me. And that's what matters, is that you see that the Father glorifies me. And then later he says these well-known words, if you keep my commands, if you abide in my love, just you will abide in my love, just as, my fa- just as I have kept my Father's commands, and I abide in his love. So he's saying, what I'm calling you to do, I've done I have joyfully obeyed the Father. I have kept his commands. I am in partnership with him. So again, as we think of the humility of Jesus, we see that joy in partnership, that joy 
in collaboration, right? And we see it, of course, ultimately with the Father and the Spirit, but we see it in that he calls disciples to himself. And he raises up a church, and he actually entrusts these disciples to continue his mission. Right? He doesn't say, I'm not going to work with you guys. You're going to mess it up, right? He commissions them and sends them out and trusts them to receive the Spirit and to work in partnership with him. And so we see, again, humility, but we also see kindness, the kindness of the servant. First, the kindness in that he brings justice. This is obviously very important, right? What does the servant do? He brings justice. Three different times we see it. End of verse 1, he will bring forth justice to the nations. Uh, middle or end of verse 3, he will faithfully bring forth justice. Once again in verse 4, till he has established justice in the earth. To bring forth justice, to be about the work of justice, is to be kind, right? Because justice comes against cruelty. Justice comes against things that are not the way they should be, that are not in line with God's kindness towards this world. So as Jesus worked towards justice, that was an act of kindness. It was an act of relieving suffering. That's what God does, right? To come against the effects of the fall. And so we see, right, a a mission statement that then we see in the Gospels lived out um, by um, Jesus to open the eyes that are blind. Verse 7, to bring up prisoners from the dungeon, from the prisons, those who sit in darkness, right? This is acts of justice that Jesus did to heal, to set free people, to feed people, to care for them, and to empower them. But Jesus brings about justice in a kind way, right? To bring justice is kindness, but the way he brings justice is kindness. That's really important. Again, look at um, uh, verse 2. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. So you have those images of gentleness, right, of kindness. So some people, right, are like a bruised reed. I'm sure all of us have had times where we felt like a bruised reed, like we were barely hanging on, like like we were very close to just being completely broken, right? And Isaiah is telling us the Messiah, the servant, when he comes, he will build up the bruised reed without breaking him or her. And when we feel like, you know, a wick that's just barely hanging on, there's hardly a spark at all, that the Lord will actually come in kindness and gentleness to help that wick to to flame up and to grow and become a raging fire. This is what he does in gentleness and loneliness. He comes alongside the hurting and the wounded and the unseen and builds them up. And again, this is important for us because I think sometimes when we think about justice and we think about bringing justice, We may feel a little bit like, hey, to bring justice, to come against evil, maybe sometimes we need to cut a few corners. Maybe sometimes, actually, we need to look at those who do evil and sort of say, hey, some of the things they're doing is working. Maybe some of their tactics we need to take to heart. We can kind of use the tactics of the injustice in order to bring justice. And the fact that we're working towards justice sort of makes it an excuse. As I said in the first service, and people seem a little confused, maybe sometimes to make a justice omelet, we think, i got to break a few eggs. Is that how that term works? I, say, oh, I'm, I think so. Um, again, right? Do we have to be cruel in order actually to ultimately see justice? And the message of the servant, right, of Jesus is no. Right? Kindness is the way of the Lord. Right? Yes, right? Justice takes perseverance. It takes work. Jesus experienced resistance. And he spoke power. He spoke truth to those in power. Right? He didn't, you know, again, it says he... He will not, he will not um, cry aloud or lift up his voice, but certainly times Jesus did speak very clearly and speak very sternly to those who needed rebuke. But he always did so with kindness. He did so as one who stood with the least of these. He did so as one who invited children right, to, to come to him. He did so as one who saw 
against those that no one else sees. And that's his calling for us, that we would bring about the work of justice, but we do so with the gentleness and the loneliness that Jesus himself modeled for us. As I think about this and I think about, again, what does this mean for us as his representatives? What does it mean for us who are called to serve the servant here and to be a servant like him? I'm struck once again that the servant's not named in these servant songs. There's a certain mystery to the servant. Matter of fact, again, even when you get to Isaiah 53, he even says that the servant really had nothing about him that people even paid attention to him. That he was a man familiar with mourning and familiar with suffering. Sort of not someone necessarily real impressive. As we think about that, and again, Jesus basically being an unnamed servant, I think a question for us is, are we willing to be unnamed servants? Are we willing to be servants who actually, not a lot of attention is given to us, but to the one we serve? As I was thinking about this, I was thinking of sort of the unnamed servants in the scriptures, right? There are a number of them. I was thinking about in um, Genesis. Abraham calls a servant to do a very important job to find a wife uh, for his son Isaac. And again, if you remember, Isaac is very important. He's the promised son. For years and years, Abraham and Sarah waited for Isaac to be the fulfillment of the promise of God. And now Isaac needs a wife, right? That's key to the family continuing that Isaac, Mary, and he have children to fulfill the covenantal promise to Abraham. And so this servant is sent out with a lot of pressure, right? You have to find a wife for my son. It must be from my kin, um, right? You can't get a wife from these groups, these groups. It must be from this group. And the servant goes out in incredible dependence on the Lord, right? Calls on the Lord, Lord, you've got to help me. I'm paraphrasing, but basically that's what he said. You've got to help me. I don't know how I'm going to do this. But eventually the Lord leads him to Rebecca, and, and he's able to bring Rebecca home and, uh, to Isaac, and he's so full of joy. And yet yeah, that whole story, and it's a long um, story, never once are we told his name. Many people speculate that he's Eliezer because he's mentioned earlier in Genesis. But I'm always struck when I read that, wow, we don't even get this servant's name. He plays such an important role. But it's like the scriptures are telling us, it's okay. He's okay with just being a servant, with just serving his master. I think about the centurion um, in uh, the Gospels who comes to Jesus because his servant is ill. And we're told he loves his servant and cares about him. He's valuable to him. And he comes to Jesus seeking Jesus' healing power for his servant. And he recognizes when he comes to Jesus, oh, Jesus is a servant as well, just like I'm a servant. If you remember, he says to Jesus, you're a man under authority like I'm a man under authority. And because I'm under authority, I have authority. For the centurion, he's under the authority of the Roman Empire, and therefore he has authority to command many troops. But he understands Jesus is under the authority of Almighty God, right? The one who created the heavens and earth and who gives life. And he understands all you have to do is speak a word and you can heal my servant. And so he sees Jesus as a servant, like I'm a servant. And yet again, we never know that centurion's name. I love that centurion. I'm like, we don't even know his name. He's so important. And so are you okay with being that type of servant? Again, the Lord knows your name, right? The Lord sees. Are you okay in the times where the Lord calls you actually to serve him in unseen ways? Jesus said, so let your light shine, right? That others may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. I think it's significant that he doesn't say, let your light shine so others may see you. Right? Not that at times people don't see us as we seek to serve the Lord. They do. But Jesus' emphasis is on, may they see your good works. And sometimes, right, the good works that come out of our prayers, the good works that come out of our generosity, the good works that come out of our, in the Lord, determining to love um, even our enemies, the good works that come out of our forgiveness, right, and our letting go of bitterness is, is unseen by anyone but the Lord. 
and yet, or at least that those acts are unseen, but the good works are seen. I mean, who knows how many prayers have been answered, right, in this church that we don't know who prayed them, but the Lord knows. It made a huge difference for who we are, right? How many acts of generosity? I met, maybe a few know, but many do not know that it's absolutely transformed our church, and we're just one small piece of God's kingdom. And so are you okay being an unnamed servant? Are you all right to live in that place of humility? And I believe as we live in that place of humility of like, I'm just a servant, right? I want people to see the Lord. I want people to see my master. It's okay if they never see me as long as he's seen. Then kindness just has to flow out of that, right? If we're about the Lord's work, if our attitude is, I don't care whether people see me or not, I, I'm doing the Lord's work, how can we be unkind? How can we cut corners? How can we think, well, maybe this part I need to do my way. You know, Lord, turn your head a minute for a while. I take things in my own hand, right? I mean, sometimes we think that way. They actually say, this is God's work, and if I can't do it with kindness, then maybe it's not the Lord's work that I'm trying to do. Maybe it's my own thing, to actually live into the, the kindness. Now, again, I understand sometimes as we seek to be kind in the Lord, it may look like cruelty to others as we speak out as best as we can what the Lord has called us to share and how he has called us to live. But we always have to answer to the Lord, Lord, am I living out that kindness that you have called me to in, the, in a hidden way, perhaps, at times as you call me? It was um, seven years ago that there was a, a horrible, horrible shooting, any shooting, mass shooting is horrible, of course, but this one took place at a Bible study. You may remember um, nine people were killed. It was in Charleston, um, South Carolina, and a white supremacist um, uh, killed um, nine people um, in this Bible study that they had welcomed him in, in, into and even prayed for him at. Um, and um, uh, after that killing, the, those murders, uh, there was an opportunity actually for the family or uh, the, for the family of people who had been um, killed at that Bible study uh, at the bond hearing for Dylan Roof, who was the, the shooter, um, to speak directly to him. And it was uh, widely covered uh, by the news because uh, family member after family member um, got up to speak and spoke again directly um, uh, to, to Dylan Roof, the, the shooter, um, and spoke to him, you know, confronting his evil and acknowledging what he did was wrong acknowledging very plainly and clearly the pain that he had caused and the evil he had done, but then also showing kindness and actually calling him to repentance and actually expressing words of forgiveness to him that he could still turn and know the Lord's mercy. Just a couple quotes um, from those family members. One, a a granddaughter of Daniel Simmons Jr., who was a, a pastor at that church. She said, Although my grandfather and the other victims died at the hands of hate, this is proof Everyone's plea for your soul is proof that they lived and loved and their legacies will live in love. So hate won't win. And I just want to thank the courts for making sure that hate doesn't win. And you see the kindness there, the kindness, um, again, towards Dylan Roof, but also towards the courts. Like, thank you for being about justice. Then another one, the sister of a, a woman, DePayne Middleton, doctor, another pastor at that church. She says, for me, I'm a work in progress. I love this honesty. And I acknowledge that I am very angry. But one thing DePayne taught me is that we are the family that love built. We have no room for hate, so we have to forgive. I pray God on your soul, and I thank God that I won't be around when your judgment day comes with him. <laughs> right? So she's clear. You're going to have to answer to the Lord. Right? He is the judge. He is about justice. But you can turn. You can know his forgiveness. I don't know how to explain kindness like that and love like that outside of, again, this servant who, who came and embodies kindness and humility and who indwells us through his spirit. So let's pray as we 
begin a new year, as we go into this new year, that we would actually know um, uh, as bruised reeds, as faintly um, burning wicks, that we would know the gentleness and the kindness of our Lord, that we would have hearts of um, openness and receptivity to receive all that he wants to give us. Father, we do thank you that you call us as servants um, and that, amazingly, you yourself are a servant, that you um, serve us. And Lord, we pray um, uh, that we would have receptive hearts to receive the humility that you call us to and the kindness that you call us to. Lord, I just want to pray right now for any, perhaps, who especially on this day hear about that bruised reed of that faintly burning wick and are, are saying, that's me, that they would know your gentleness, Lord, that they would know that it is your desire to build them up, not to tear them down, to give them strength. And they would know actually a joy in the call to humility, that that is not a burden that you put on them, but a gift. And that you would give them, again, in each one of us, um, hearts to receive all the kindness that you have for us. We offer these prayers in the name of Jesus. Amen.